Welcome to the History AI Podcast, where the past comes alive with facts, anecdotes, and a dash of humor. Here are your hosts, Chuck and Marco. Hello, history buffs. Welcome to the centennial episode of the History AI Podcast, the show where the past is always present. I'm Chuck. And I'm Marco. It's episode 100, and we're rolling out the historical red carpet for the man of the hour, George Washington. To honor this special occasion we've got C.J., a Washington aficionado, joining us to navigate the monumental life of America's founding father. Hey C.J. Hey Chuck and Marco. I'm stoked to be here for the 100th episode party, feels like a presidential inauguration. Only with fewer powdered wigs and more podcast mics. Let's kick things off with a look at George Washington's early life and family history. As we unfurl the pages of history back to the early 18th century, let's start with George Washington's origins. Born into the colonial gentry on February 22, 1732, in Westmoreland County, Virginia, George was the first son of his father Augustine Washington's second marriage, to Mary Ball Washington. Augustine was a man of means, a planter with significant landholdings and interests in mining, milling, and politics. Mary Ball, on the other hand, was of English descent and somewhat of a formidable matriarch. The family's roots can be traced back to the English gentry, clearly, leadership was in George's blood. Exactly Chuck. Now, Augustine had children from his first marriage, Lawrence and Augustine Jr., as you mentioned. They were significantly older than George and played an influential role in his upbringing, especially after their father passed away when George was just 11 years old. That's right, and though George would eventually inherit Mount Vernon from Lawrence, it was not an immediate passage. His father's death meant a disruption in his formal education. While his half-brothers had the privilege of studying in England, George's education was largely homegrown. Yes, he was mostly self-taught, with perhaps a bit of schooling from the local sexton and later a schoolmaster named Williams. His studies included the basics, reading, writing, arithmetic, and a bit of geometry and surveying, which wasn't so common at the time. Seems like he was drawing more than just ABCs in his copybook. Speaking of surveying, wasn't it George's ticket to joining the ranks of Virginia's elite? Spot on Marco surveying was a prestigious and practical skill in the colonies, where land was wealth. At just 16, George secured an appointment to survey land for Lord Fairfax, a prominent nobleman in the region. It was a job that took him deep into the rugged frontier of the Shenandoah Valley. Talk about a field trip. Washington was quite literally charting his future and Virginia's landscapes. His work impressed Fairfax enough that he was appointed as the official surveyor of Culpeper County by the age of 17. That's younger than most modern teens get their driver's licenses, and George was already mapping out territories. And we can't overlook the character-building aspect of this job. The wilderness tested him, nurturing the resilience and resourcefulness that would become hallmarks of his leadership. Washington was an athletic young chap, right CJ? Absolutely. George was known for his strength and horsemanship. It was said that once he turned 14 no one, not even grown men could best him in a game of throwing stones. He could also ride like he was born in the saddle and had a reputation for his wrestling prowess. If only there had been a colonial idol back then, Washington might have wrestled his way to fame before politics. His upbringing was less about classical education and more about practical knowledge and the leadership of men, which frankly, you can't learn from a book. Quite the Renaissance man, our George, part surveyor, part strongman, and with a dash of frontier charisma. 
Who knew he was practicing to be president while among the pines and rivers of Virginia? Indeed, and as we'll see throughout our deep dive today, these formative years laid a foundation for the surveyor, soldier, statesman, and president he was to become. A multifaceted foundation for a multifaceted man. Thanks, CJ. That's a solid groundwork on George Washington's early life and family history. Did you know, young George Washington nearly embarked on a maritime adventure with the British Navy? His half-brother Lawrence and his friend, in the influential Fairfax family, had secured a midshipman's warrant for him. But here's where family dynamics come into play. Mary Ball Washington, George's mother, was strongly opposed to this path. The sea was no place for her son, according to Mary. And you know what they say mother knows best. Absolutely, she envisioned a different fate for George, and in hindsight, we can all agree it was a fortunate intervention. Otherwise, he might have been Admiral Washington, I suppose. Maybe Marco, but let's remember, the British Navy in those days was a tough environment, especially for a teenager. He would have been starting at the bottom, and the harsh conditions on the ships were notorious. Instead of braving the seas, George found himself back on terra firma, taking up the practice of surveying, a skill that in the frontier was as valuable as gold. It wasn't just about measuring land, it was about understanding terrain, resource management, and the complex dynamics of colonial land ownership. His first major surveying expedition, in 1748, was a demanding one, taking him through the uncharted Shenandoah Valley. This was a rite of passage for Washington. Beyond the practicalities of the job, it taught him about leadership and negotiation with various parties, from landowners to Native American tribes. And the man had a knack for it. By age 17, he was appointed the official surveyor of Culper County, a position that came with a nice slice of prestige and, more importantly, the opportunity to purchase land at a bargain. That's right. Surveyors often got first dibs on the best plots. George was accumulating property, and along with it, a small fortune. By the time he was in his early 20s, he had thousands of acres to his name. That's the colonial version of a get-rich-quick scheme, except it involved more sweat and mosquitoes than most modern equivalents. Exactly, Chuck. It was through this meticulous work, documenting and claiming land, that Washington was carving out his future. He wasn't just looking at land, he was envisioning possibilities, a trait that would serve him well in years to come. And these experiences would prove invaluable to Washington. The skills he honed in the wilderness, leadership, strategy, endurance, were the very ones he would later rely on during the tumultuous times of the Revolutionary War. No doubt about it. The woods were Washington's classroom, and nature, his demanding tutor. It's here that the young surveyor learned the lessons that would shape him into a leader among men. So when we think of Washington, we must picture him not just as a president but as a young man of the frontier, an explorer of the American landscape in the most literal sense. It's amazing how a young man's eagerness in his early careers would one day help him lead a nation. Stay with us as we continue to plot the course of Washington's life, right after this short break. From the mind behind the History AI podcast comes an electrifying journey into the past. A ripple through time, Franklin's folly. Dive into a tale where Benjamin Franklin, America's beloved inventor, takes an unexpected journey through time. But with his leap, he unleashes a powerful ripple. Now, with dark forces lurking in the shadows, harnessing this energy to shatter and enslave the world, it's a race against time. Will Franklin fix the future? Or will history rewrite itself? Uncover the secrets. 
a ripple through time, Franklin's folly. Time has never been more fragile. On Amazon now, welcome back. George Washington's ambitions were not confined to the backwoods of Virginia. His role in the Virginia militia would set the stage for his future military and political career. So CJ, how does a young man go from surveying land to serving in the militia? Well Chuck, in colonial Virginia, the lines between civilian and military life were rather blurred. The militia was part of the defense mechanism of the colony. With his surveying trips and his growing social status, Washington was well-positioned to secure a commission. And in 1752, when his brother Lawrence died, George set his sights on his brother's former post of adjutant general. He was only 20 years old when he was appointed as the official district adjutant, which basically made him a major in the militia right. Exactly Marco. And his first major assignment wasn't some small-time local dispute, it was as an envoy to the French, delivering an ultimatum to vacate the Ohio Valley, which was claimed by both the British and the French. I bet delivering that message was as comfortable as wearing wool underwear in Virginia's summer heat. I'm sure. The French, predictably, refused to leave, and that set the stage for Washington's first taste of combat during the skirmish at Jumonville Glen, a clash that essentially lit the fuse for the French and Indian War. And then there's the ill-fated Fort Necessity. Washington had to surrender to the French, which must have been a tough pill to swallow for a young and ambitious officer. Indeed. The surrender at Fort Necessity was a major learning moment for Washington. The terms of capitulation included an admission of assassination of the French leader Jumonville which was a language misunderstanding but had serious diplomatic repercussions. It's like signing a confession for eating the last piece of cake when all you did was smell it. That experience as humbling as it was laid the groundwork for his leadership style, measured, cautious, but also determined. Absolutely. And the following year, 1755, brought the Battle of the Monongahela, part of the ill-starred expedition to capture Fort Duquesne. Washington acted as an aide-de-camp to General Edward Braddock. That expedition was a disaster. Braddock's forces were ambushed, and the general was mortally wounded. Washington's leadership during the retreat earned him the nickname Hero of the Monongahela. Yes, and it's here that we see Washington's cool head under fire. Despite two horses being shot out from under him and four bullets piercing his coat, he managed to organize the retreat and save the remnants of the force. Talk about a bad day at the office. But George wasn't one to give up. He even came back to the region three years later, as part of an expedition that successfully ousted the French from Fort Duquesne. His tenacity and courage were evident. The same attributes that made him an effective surveyor, resilience, a good eye for terrain, and decisiveness, proved indispensable in a military context. From the dense forests of the frontier to the smoky battlegrounds of the French and Indian War, Washington was fashioning a resume as impressive as any colonial LinkedIn profile could boast. And it's this military grounding that would set Washington on the path to becoming the leader of the Continental Army and eventually, the first president of the United States. All right listeners were diving into George Washington's personal life, which was as pivotal as his public persona. In 1759, George Washington, at the age of 27, married Martha Dandridge Custis, a wealthy widow with two young children. That's right Chuck. Martha brought considerable wealth to the marriage, including land, slaves, and money. This financial security allowed Washington to expand his own holdings and influence. So, George was sort of the ultimate catch of colonial Virginia, huh? Military hero, tall, and now, thanks to Martha, 
Quite wealthy. Indeed Marco. But it wasn't just the money. The marriage also elevated Washington's status in Virginia society, which was crucial for his future political career. So, they settle at Mount Vernon, which George had inherited from his half-brother Lawrence. What was life like at the estate? Well, it wasn't just a plantation, it was a small village. There were farms, gardens, a gristmill, and a distillery. Washington was deeply involved in its operations, experimenting with crop rotation, animal husbandry, and even fishing. He was basically the Elon Musk of 18th century agriculture then? You could say that. Washington was innovative. He transitioned from tobacco to wheat as the primary cash crop, which was less labor-intensive and better for the soil. But we have to address the uncomfortable truth. Mount Vernon, like much of colonial Virginia, ran on slave labor. Washington inherited slaves from his father and acquired more through his marriage. Absolutely, it's a critical aspect of his legacy that's getting more attention. Washington's views on slavery were complex and evolved over time. He expressed private concerns about the institution, yet publicly he was a slave owner. His will did provide for the emancipation of his slaves upon Martha's death, which suggests his struggle with the institution of slavery. Indeed. His actions during and after the presidency did reflect an evolving perspective, even if it was not as progressive as some figures of his time. So, we have this robust life at Mount Vernon, but the winds of change were blowing. Washington was transitioning from a successful planter to a burgeoning political figure. That's correct. By the 1760s, Washington was becoming more involved in colonial politics, serving in the Virginia House of Burgesses. He was also becoming increasingly concerned about British policies and their impact on the colonies. And then there's the whole taxation without representation issue. I imagine Washington wasn't throwing tea parties over the Stamp Act. Far from it. He was deeply opposed to the Stamp Act and other British impositions. Washington believed strongly in the rights of the colonies, and this period really solidified his identity as an American rather than a British subject. From managing Mount Vernon to navigating the turbulent waters of colonial politics, Washington was a man in the middle of transformation. It's like he was stepping out of his farm boots and into his dancing shoes, ready for the political ballroom dance that was to come. A dance that would lead him straight to the Continental Congress. As the 1760s and 70s rolled on, Washington found himself not just as a Virginian, but at the forefront of a continental dialogue. The colonial resistance was gaining momentum, and Washington was about to ride that wave all the way to Philadelphia. The First Continental Congress met in 1774, and Washington was one of Virginia's delegates. This wasn't just a meeting, it was the embryonic stage of a unified American government. And wasn't this the first time many of these soon-to-be American leaders were meeting each other? Yes, Marco. It was a gathering of diverse minds. Washington was rubbing shoulders with the likes of Patrick Henry and John Adams. These sessions were about airing grievances but also about forming a collective colonial identity. So, they're all meeting, airing out the dirty colonial laundry, but how is Washington distinguishing himself in this crowd? Washington wasn't the loudest voice there, he was the presence in the room. His reputation as a leader in Virginia and his military experience from the French and Indian War gave him a certain gravitas. The silent type, eh? I guess he knew that sometimes you don't need to speak to be heard. Exactly. Washington's strength was in his resolve and his appearance as a seasoned, committed Virginian patriot. When he showed up to the Congress in his military uniform, he was making a statement, 
he was ready to fight for the rights of the colonies. Now, this takes us to the brink of war. April 19, 1775, shots are fired at Lexington and Concord, and the American Revolutionary War begins. And who do they call? George Washington, because when you need a revolution, you call a man who shows up to a peace meeting dressed for war. Well, when the Second Continental Congress convened in May 1775, Washington was there, and this time, he wouldn't just be a delegate. He was appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army on June 15, thanks to his military background, Virginian roots, and let's not forget, John Adams's recommendation. So, he's given command of an army that's, well, it's less an army and more a gathering of rebellious citizens at this point, right? Correct. He took command of a disparate group of colonial militias surrounding British-occupied Boston. This was a ragtag band of fighters, lacking in training, equipment, and sometimes even shoes. But our man George wasn't deterred by a lack of resources. He was all about that can-do attitude. Indeed he was. And Washington's first order of business was the Siege of Boston, which was essentially the first major military engagement of his command. That siege was like a chess game with real cannons. Precisely. Washington knew he couldn't attack head-on, so he fortified his positions and waited for an opportunity. That came when Henry Knox brought in artillery from Fort Ticonderoga. So, he's basically playing the long game, setting up his pieces, and waiting for the right moment to say checkmate. Exactly. And it worked. When the British saw the cannon pointed at them from Dorchester Heights, they realized the jig was up and evacuated the city in March 1776. That's a feather in the cap for General Washington. But the war was just getting started. What came next was a series of ups and downs. There was the loss of New York City, the morale-boosting victories at Trenton and Princeton, and the harsh winter at Valley Forge. It's like he was collecting a full set of Revolutionary War trading cards. Got at Siege of Boston, need a winter at Valley Forge. Through all this, Washington was showing not just military acumen, but also the traits of a statesman. He dealt with Congress, managed alliances with the French, and kept the army together despite desertions, supply issues, and military defeats. So, we have a man who goes from the colonial elite to leading a revolution. That's quite the trajectory. From surveyor to soldier to statesman. It's like a real-life game of Sid Meier's civilization, and Washington's playing on deity mode. And this is where George Washington found himself at the helm of a revolution, facing the British lion with a continental army that's growing stronger under his command. Now, we're moving into some of the stormiest periods of the Revolutionary War, where General Washington faced challenges that would have made lesser men buckle. CJ, lead us into this. Well Chuck, after the high of the Boston siege, Washington faced an immense trial, defending New York. The British, with their superior naval power, posed a strategic nightmare. Washington had to defend against a force that could strike anywhere along the coast. So, it's a bit like playing goalie, but the other team has a few dozen balls in play at once. An apt analogy Marco. Despite his best efforts, the loss of New York in the fall of 1776 was a significant blow, both militarily and to morale. And didn't this loss sort of set the tone for the next few years? I mean Washington is revered, but he faced criticism at this time right? Absolutely. There were whispers of doubt in Congress and among his officers. But Washington's leadership wasn't just about battlefield decisions, it was about holding the army together. He was dealing with mutinies, supply shortages, and the British's divide-and-conquer tactics. 
Sounds like a tough time. How did he keep the troops together? Discipline, inspiration, and a healthy dose of espionage. The creation of the Culper's spy ring was vital. This network gathered intelligence in British-held New York and was critical in uncovering Benedict Arnold's treachery. So Washington was the spymaster-in-chief as well. I suppose he had to be crafty in every sense. Exactly. Washington understood that information was as powerful as any cannon. The spy ring's work was incredibly sophisticated, coded messages, dead drops, even using invisible ink. Invisible ink? So, Washington was into magic tricks now. Now you see it, now the Brits don't. He might as well have been a magician. And let's not overlook the struggles at Valley Forge during the winter of 1777-78. It was a time of suffering, but also transformation. The troops were trained and drilled, emerging as a more cohesive and disciplined force. Right, that's when Baron von Steuben comes into play, turning the Continental Army into a more professional force? Precisely. His drills and regulations are often credited with turning the tide. And then there's the Marquis de Lafayette, who became like a son to Washington. His French connections and military prowess were invaluable. It's like Washington was hosting an 18th-century exchange program at Valley Forge, and everyone's learning how to be top-notch revolutionaries. Tough times indeed, but let's jump around a bit. Alongside Valley Forge, there were victories at Trenton and Princeton, right? They were crucial for morale. Absolutely. The surprise attack on Trenton after crossing the Delaware on Christmas night, 1776, and the subsequent victory at Princeton a week later, were daring moves that paid off. They reinvigorated the American cause and restored faith in Washington's leadership. And that faith was necessary because there were more challenges ahead, like keeping the French alliance strong and managing a prolonged conflict with an enemy that wasn't ready to throw in the towel just yet. A tall order for any general. But as we know, Washington wasn't just any general. Indeed, he wasn't. His resilience during these trying times cemented his reputation as a leader who could weather any storm, a reputation that would soon lead to the ultimate test, the siege of Yorktown. Now CJ, we've seen Washington weather storms of doubt and hardship. How does he go from embattled general to the man who would secure American independence? Chuck, after years of dogged resistance and strategic counterattacks, Washington saw an opportunity in 1781. The British under Cornwallis made a grave mistake, they decided to fortify at Yorktown, a position Washington and his French allies saw as vulnerable. So, it's like Cornwallis checked into the Hotel California, a lovely place, but you can never leave. Spot on Marco. With the French fleet blocking escape by sea and the Franco-American forces surrounding them on land, Cornwallis was trapped. This is the moment, the final countdown to the big victory. Yes, the siege of Yorktown was intense. Artillery barrages trench warfare, the works. It lasted from late September to October 19, 1781, when Cornwallis, recognizing the hopelessness of his situation, surrendered. Quite the finale. Fireworks, but in the form of cannonballs, I suppose. And yet, with the victory secured and the world turned upside down, Washington's thoughts were already turning toward the future of this new nation. That's true. While everyone else celebrated, he was concerned about the army's future and the nascent country's stability. He quashed a potential military coup, known as the Newburgh Conspiracy, by appealing directly to his officers' sense of honor and patriotism. The old tearjerker speech move. He basically convinced them not to overthrow the government because that's not what gentlemen do. 
It was more than that Marco. His speech reminded them of their shared struggle and the ideals they fought for. He even had to put on his glasses to read his address, saying, Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown grey but almost blind in the service of my country. It was a deeply moving moment that quelled the unrest. So no military hunt-up but instead he returns to civilian life? Precisely. In one of his most defining acts, on December 23, 1783, Washington resigned his commission as commander-in-chief to the Congress assembled in Annapolis, Maryland. This act reinforced the principle of civilian control over the military and set an example for the world. I can imagine the scene, Washington riding into Annapolis, cool as a cucumber, handing over the reins of power, and then just, what? Riding off into the sunset? It's a testament to the man's character. He didn't grasp for power, he relinquished it. But his retirement was short-lived, wasn't it CJ? It was. Washington longed for a peaceful life back at Mount Vernon, but the country he helped create was still finding its feet. The Articles of Confederation were proving inadequate in unifying the new states, leading to economic turmoil and political instability. Which spoiler alert, means our story is far from over. Washington's role in shaping the United States was just entering its next act. From commander-in-chief to gentleman farmer, but not for long. Yes, Washington's legacy as a military leader is secure, but his impact as a statesman is about to unfold. Let's remember that George Washington hoped to leave the political stage for the tranquility of his Mount Vernon estate. But history, it seems, was not quite done with him. But CJ, this retirement didn't last, did it? Not at all, Chuck. Washington's respite at Mount Vernon was interrupted by the realization that the nation he fought for was floundering. The Articles of Confederation had created a weak central government, and states were acting almost as independent countries. So, he's on his farm, probably thinking, I did not fight a war just to watch this country turn into a Game of Thrones sequel. Exactly, Marco. The mounting crisis culminated in the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Washington was initially reluctant to attend, fearing the failure of reform and the potential damage to his reputation. But attend he did, and as the most respected man in America, he was unanimously elected to preside over the convention. His role was more than ceremonial. Though Washington wasn't a vocal participant, his leadership and authority kept debates orderly and focused. His mere presence lent legitimacy to the proceedings and helped guide the framers toward compromise. So, he's like the all-star quarterback who doesn't need to trash talk because everyone knows he can throw the touchdown pass. When the Constitution was ratified, there was only one man the nation wanted as its first president. Washington was elected unanimously in 1789. It's hard to overstate the weight of expectation resting on his shoulders. As president, Washington set many precedents. He established the cabinet as an advisory body, defined the role of the executive branch, and even established the practice of a two-term limit by stepping down after his second term. And the policies? We've got the Bill of Rights, the creation of a national bank, and the tricky navigation of foreign affairs that set the standards for US neutrality. Don't forget his domestic achievements, fostering national unity, laying the foundations for the American economy, and ensuring the smooth operation of the new federal government. His presidency wasn't without its challenges though. The Whiskey Rebellion tested the new government's ability to enforce law and order. Yes, and Washington's decision to lead troops in quelling the rebellion was a bold statement, that the federal government had the authority and the will to enforce its laws. Seems like Washington was the original Mr. Fixit of American politics. 
In many ways, yes. And throughout his presidency, he remained ever the stoic figure, even as political parties began to form around him, which he greatly disliked. And then there's the farewell address in 1796, parting wisdom from a man who had seen it all. His farewell address was a powerful statement promoting national unity, warning against the dangers of political factions and foreign entanglements. It's still read in the Senate annually, a testament to its enduring relevance. But even after all that, he didn't get to enjoy his retirement for long, right? Correct. His retirement was brief. Tensions with France led President Adams to appoint Washington as commander of the American army once again in 1798, though he left the field command to his subordinate, Alexander Hamilton. So, George Washington, the military leader turned statesman, had come full circle. But the story of Washington doesn't end with his presidency. His final years at Mount Vernon were marked by continued engagement in national affairs until his death in 1799. His passing was widely mourned. Washington's death was not just the loss of a former president, it was as if the young republic had lost its father. In his impact, well, it shaped the office of the presidency and the nation at large. From his military tactics to his executive precedents, his influence reverberates through American history. Washington set a high bar, humility, duty, and service. His legacy is reflected in the countless statues, counties, and even the capital city that bears his name. It's no exaggeration to say that without Washington, the United States would be a very different place. He was, as King George III predicted, the greatest character of the age. CJ, thanks for taking this journey with us through George Washington's life. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us on this deep dive. If you enjoyed unraveling the fabric of America's first president with us, please subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. Here's to another hundred episodes where history comes alive. This has been the History AI Podcast with Chuck and Marco, featuring our esteemed guest CJ. 